so my name is Jordan Rice. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Renaissance. Uh, my favorite thing to do on my day off is something that I'm sure a lot of you guys do. Uh, I love to sit, plop on the couch, get a good meal, and watch Netflix for about eight to ten hours. Um, my wife is not as disciplined as I am. Uh, she's not able to get past three or four, but I, I have the, the power and the endurance to go at least six to seven episodes in, in one day. Um, I think at the end of the day, I just, I love a good story. And if it's asking me the question, do I want to continue watching? Yes, I do. Keep the party going. <laughs> uh, long before there was a Netflix, as uh, horrifying as that is to imagine, uh, scripture was telling us amazing stories about people that uh, have blown my mind. And they've been stories that I've gone back to over and over again, and they've stuck with me. Now, throughout Scripture, there's uh, a way that they describe people's lives, which is beautifully messy. Uh, when Scripture tells us about a person, they don't just give us the Instagram story version of their life. Uh, they give us the real deal. I think that if God were to give us the details of your life, it would be pretty messy as well, not just the stuff that you want people to know. And people's lives are messy. They're complicated. Growth with God never looks like a straight arrow pointed up. People go forward and backwards and forward and backwards, sometimes in a week's time. Uh, this is one story in Scripture about a man that I want to spend some time unpacking today because it's impacted me pretty deeply, and hopefully you'll, you'll, you'll know why in just a little bit. It's about a guy named Peter. Uh, Peter, for you guys who didn't wake up this morning uh, having read the biography of Peter, uh, he grew up in a fishing town called Galilee. It's in the suburbs of Jerusalem. He, he basically grew up in Staten Island, for those of you guys who are from New York. And Peter and his family, uh, they had a business. They were fishers. Peter grew up studying the Torah like every Jewish boy, but he wasn't the sharpest knife in the drawer. He wasn't the best student. Uh, chances are he dropped out at around middle school to work with his dad in a family business. He wasn't the guy that you would think would be the first draft pick for anyone or any rabbi to study under. But yet, when Jesus started his ministry, he started calling people to follow him. Jesus does some stuff that's pretty weird in those days. He didn't go after the educated and the, uh, the really polished people. He went after these uneducated and unpolished fishermen. Peter was so uneducated and so unpolished that even later in his life, when he was preaching one time, uh, the, the people remarked that, man, who are these uneducated Galileans. Who are these uneducated fishermen, and why are they talking to us about this? His life wasn't, by any stretch of the imagination, uh, normal. Peter, but still, was a follower of Jesus. As a matter of fact, he was one of Jesus' closest followers, that when Jesus would go and be away from people, Peter was one of the two dudes that Jesus would take with him. And Peter had seen Jesus do amazing things. Peter had seen with his own two eyes Jesus heal the blind and uh, restore um, uh, power to someone's legs who couldn't walk. And Peter had a pretty impressive resume uh, in his life. In terms of spiritual experiences, his resume is probably better than anybody's. I can't think of anybody that had experienced more amazing things than Peter. But his life continued to take twists and turns that you and I would never expect. Peter's life was messy, and so are ours. Right before Jesus was about to get crucified, Peter had all of this arrogance, like, yo, Jesus, it doesn't matter what anybody else does. If they come for you, it's me and you, Papa. I'm never going to leave you. I'm going to go down throwing hands with you. 
Jesus looked at Peter and said, hey, man, before the rooster crows three times, you're going to deny me. Peter said, no way, man, not even close. But yet when the angry mob of people that, that had just arrested Jesus started to identify Peter, he got shook. And he started to deny Jesus over and over and over again. Now what happened next is Peter experienced a force in life that is something so foreign to humans, something so profound that it did change his life forever. It's something called grace. Grace is when you have done something wrong and you get something good that you don't deserve. Peter had just denied Jesus. And after Jesus was resurrected, he makes a beeline to Peter to reinstate him back into the fold. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I do. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I do. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I do. Then Peter, go and feed my sheep. There's no reinstatement period. There's no probationary period. There's no performance improvement plan in order for him to get it right the next time. Simply, Peter, go and feed my sheep. In a little less than two months after Peter's greatest failure, you see Peter's greatest triumph. He's standing in front of a crowd of thousands and thousands of people, and he preaches a sermon that is so powerful. God used it so amazingly that 3,000 people come and find faith in Jesus that day. He goes from a remarkable transformation. Now, we're looking at a scripture today that is not going to be looking at the highlight of Peter's life. A lot of times when we look at other people's lives, we see the, the highlight reels, uh, but now we get to see the day-to-day -day version of what he was really struggling with. Despite all of his amazing experiences, despite all of his amazing accomplishments, we see Peter going back to an old way of life that had haunted him ever since he was born. Peter's old way of life was kind of like his shadow that was following him everywhere he went. And even though he had seen Jesus heal the blind, even though he had preached sermons and thousands of people came to faith in him, his past wasn't too far behind him. It was something that he couldn't escape. In Galatians 2, 11 through 14, it says, But when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For he regularly ate with Gentiles before certain men came from James. However, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, because he feared those from the circumcision party. Then the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Peter in front of everyone, if you're a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, here's what was going on. Uh, Christianity, when it first started to spread, it didn't just stay in Jewish circles, even though Jesus himself was Jewish. After Christianity started to spread, it started to go to all these different regions of people who formerly had a whole bunch of different religions. And these Jewish people had thousands of years of tradition, thousands of years of culture that was well-established, well-determined of things that they did and they didn't do. Two of those things was the, their dietary restrictions. For them, there were certain foods that were clean and certain foods that were unclean, certain things that they ate, certain things that they would never eat. Now, it wasn't just that they were food snobs. It's not just that they said, hey, we won't go to Applebee's because it's trash. They believed, and you know Applebee's is trash. Come on, let's be honest. <laughs> they believed that eating good in the neighborhood would make you unclean before God. 
They believed that what you ate, the food that entered into your mouth, would actually separate you on the day that you met God, that God would determine, God would declare you clean or unclean simply because of that bacon, egg, and cheese you got at the bodega. Not just that, but there was also another law called circumcision, and this wasn't done for hygienic reasons as many parents do today. This was done as a sign of a covenant between God's people and God. To be circumcised was to be a part of God's family. To not be circumcised meant you were cut off. Early in Christianity, there were these two camps of people. One camp of people that Paul represents that says, listen, Jesus is enough. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. You don't need to add anything to what Jesus has done for you on the cross. When Jesus went to the cross and he, was, uh, and he died, it says the temple, in the temple, the veil split between two. The former separation between man and God was now forever ended. There was no more chasm. There was no more need for a temple. There was no more need for sacrifices. Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice, fully approved by God. He has made a 100% way for you and God to be all the way good. And you can't add another thing to that. And these Jews came behind and said, yeah but you also have to get circumcised. And you also have to add these dietary restrictions to what Jesus says to do. Here's what's so devastating about this text. Peter knew better. When Paul says, I came and confronted Peter to his face, he wasn't coming to Peter with stuff that he's never heard before. He was just reminding Peter of the stuff that he already knew was wrong. There's a selection of scripture in Acts 10 where Peter Uh, goes up to the roof, and it says it like this. Um, Peter went up to pray on the roof at about noon. He became hungry and wanted to eat. But while they were preparing something, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and an object that resembled a large sheet coming down, being lowered by its four corners to the earth. In it were all the four-footed animals and reptiles of the earth and birds of the sky. A voice said to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. No, Lord, no, Lord. Peter said, for I have never eaten anything impure and ritually unclean. Again, a second time, the voice said to him, what God has made clean, do not call impure. Right after this, Peter goes to the house of these Gentiles, uh, a man named uh, Cornelius. And uh, Gentiles were basically everybody who wasn't Jewish. Uh, So it's basically like native New Yorkers, either you're from the city or you're from upstate, right? I grew up like one mile outside of the Bronx, and they're like, oh, you're from Syracuse. I'm like, listen, stop. (laughs) Don't be disrespectful. Uh, But for Jews, either you're a Jew or you're not, period. And uh, Cornelius was a Gentile, a God-fearing man, and Peter goes, and he goes to the house of um, Cornelius, something that a Jew would have never done. And here's what Peter says, you know it's forbidden for a Jewish man to associate or visit with a foreigner. But God has shown me that I must not call any person impure or unclean. This wasn't Peter saying, you know what, I heard a good argument that I think this is kind of true. He's saying, no, God himself has come down in a vision and and told me, don't do this. There could be no more clear instruction for Peter. And yet in Galatians, we see him go back to the very thing, the very back, go back to the very way of life go back to his past and what his culture had established for him to do, even though he knew better. Now, we're in this series called Transformation, and we're trying to understand what it looks like for you to not just gain new information, but for you to actually be transformed from the inside out. 
that your life will look different today than it did yesterday, that your life will look differently next year than it does today. And over and over again, here's what we see that's crazy from the life of Peter. We can never assume that genuine interactions with Jesus, spiritual high moments, would make us immune from going back to our old way of life. You can never assume that a vision even from Jesus, if Jesus himself were to come down to your apartment and give you a vision and tell you this is what you should do, you should never even still assume that you're now immune from ever going back to your way of life. Now, Peter had a a culture that was established for thousands of years before him, and that culture, that narrative was a tape that was playing in his head over and over and over again. And here's what I know to be true for me that I also know to be true for you. All of us have narratives that are playing in our head, and some of those narratives are completely against what God has called us to do. Some of the things that our culture accepts to be good, some of these things that our culture accepts to be right, go actually in stark contrast to what God wants us to do. And I don't want us to stop at coming to church and hearing a good sermon. I don't want us to stop at listening to a good worship song that puts some tears in your eyes. I don't want us to stop anything short of doing some of the hard work that's required for us to actually experience transformation in our lives. Transformation requires that you and I put off the sinful patterns of our past, the previously held narratives of our families and our families of origin, and somehow now relearning how to do life in in line with the family of God. Now, when Jesus came, he had three objectives for his disciples. It was for them to learn new things. It was for them to unlearn some things that they thought they knew. And it was for them to be in a community to relearn those things over and over again. For you to put your faith in Jesus, it will be a continual process of you learning, unlearning, and relearning. You're going to need to learn new information that you didn't know before. And you're going to need to unlearn some of these narratives and things in your life that you thought that you had previously held before. And guess what? Just like your shadow, they will always be behind you. You're going to have to be in a rhythm of continually relearning what it means to live in line with the gospel. Now, oftentimes when we talk about the gospel, when we talk about a relationship with Jesus, I think we misunderstand what it actually looks like on our part. Uh, We understand, at least conceptually, what God has done for us. Uh, But one of the best ways I know how to describe this is actually in marriage. Now, the way we understand marriage today is way different than what marriage was understood back then. And when Scripture talks about the church being the bride of Christ, or you and I having a relationship with Jesus in the sense of a covenantal marriage... It's way different than what we understand today. Today, marriage is about love and the warm and fuzzies and I will always love you and, you know, Whitney Houston in the background at the wedding. Um, And it's about how you feel emotionally connected to someone and them fulfilling you and them breaking out your deepest desires and them waking you up and you feeling more alive and all this other uh, stuff that we inherit from the movies. Uh, In that culture, when they talked about marriage, it was simply an establishment of a relationship. It was simply an establishment of an unbreakable covenantal bond between two people. When the Bible says that you and I are united with Christ in marriage, it's not talking about intimacy. It's talking about the establishment of a relationship. The relationship was established by Jesus when he went to the cross, period. You cannot add or work to get that at all. You do have to work for intimacy and uncovering things in your life to draw closer to God, to become more and more like God. 
It's the hard process of sanctification. That's the big word of becoming what we already are, learning and unlearning and relearning. And that's going to require you and I do some hardcore excavation of what it is going on in our lives. Because listen to this. If Peter, who walked with Jesus, saw him do miracle after miracle, had a vision from Jesus, if he wasn't immune, then trust me, you and I are not either. There are things from our past that are always lurking right behind us. And we are never immune from going back to our previous ways of life. Before I come at anybody else's neck, uh, I'll just throw myself on the sword first. Um, growing up, um, I, I don't know where I inherited from specifically. I can't give any specific definition or any time when it happened. But I just remember feeling like in order to be a real man, like a real man, um, like Rambo or something like that, like you could never cry. Like real men don't cry. The only two emotions you're really allowed to feel are happiness and anger. Everything else is not manly. You can't be confused. You, you can't be scared. You can't be sad. That basically makes you a punk. And for years and years of my life, uh, I carried that around. I remember um, about 10 years ago being at uh, my grandmother's funeral, and I love my grandmother deeply, and I remember thinking to myself, yo, I cannot cry. Probably for the last 15 years before that, I had repressed and pushed down any emotion of sadness so deeply that when it came time to feel appropriate sadness, I couldn't even cry even if I wanted to. I was reading a book by Bell Hooks uh, called The Will to Change on Men, Masculinity, and Love, and she said something that absolutely stopped me in my tracks. Um, she wrote that our culture teaches a form of emotional stoicism to men that says they are more manly if they do not feel but if by chance that they should feel and the feelings are hurt, are hurt, the manly response is to stuff them down, to forget about them, to hope they go away. She talked about a friend um, that had repressed sadness for so long in his own life that he couldn't feel anything in her life, and I felt like she was writing about me. Now, I love who God made me to be. I think God has given uh, men and women beautiful gifts of masculinity and femininity. But what I had inherited from the culture was not God-given masculinity. It was this toxic version of hyper-masculinity that says, if you're a real man, you will never cry. You will never show weakness. You will never admit that you don't know what you're doing. And because I inherited that, I pushed those feelings down for well over a decade now, God has done some wonderful things in my life, many of those things on, the, on a counselor's couch uh, receiving therapy, and I now uh, can cry very easily. If you've been at Renaissance for like a month, you've seen me cry on stage. Like, uh, this is, you know, whenever uh, ESPN comes out with this, the Make-A-Wish stuff, y'all watch that? Like, I'm on my couch bawling. Like, every time they bring these kids out, I'm like, oh, man, full thug tears uh, are, are being shed. When my son was born, I made a promise to myself that I would not raise him in the way that I had experienced culture. And it's something that's so powerful. My dad was a manly man who cried, uh, so I didn't even get what I had gotten from home. Um, but I became so determined that when my son was born, I'm going to raise him to feel. I'm not going to let him be an emotionally repressed kid that just goes through life stuffing stuff down and is unable to feel and one day becomes this um, unhealth emotionally unhealthy kid who's uh, avoiding all healthy expressions of emotions. And a couple months ago, I went to the playground with him, and, you know, we were at the, the, the playground around a, around a corner from our apartment. 
And as soon as we got to the playground, he was riding on different things, and he got on a slide and fell. And he didn't fall hard enough to, like, really hurt himself to go to the hospital, but he definitely fell enough to shake himself up a little bit. And as soon as he fell, he started to cry. And in, like, a split second, I saw the people in the park looking at him and looking at me, and I walked over to him, and I said, oh, stop, 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 like crying, man up. My son is two, by the way. And it was almost like somebody had punched me in my stomach. I had made previous decisions that I would not raise my son to be an emotionally repressed child, and yet I was raising him to be an emotionally repressed child. I was raising him to do the one thing that I know is wrong to do. I know that's toxic. I know that's going to hurt him if he develops a pattern of life where he's unable to feel sadness. I know that's going to hurt, but yet I couldn't escape it even myself. In order for us to be transformed in line with the gospel, we need to do the hard work of digging up some stuff in our life to excavate it so that we can shine the bright light of the gospel on those areas of life that we would rather not talk about. It's going to require you to more than just learn new information about God, but for us to unlearn some things about our life, to challenge the narratives in our head, and to face some pretty difficult realities about our life, our culture, our family of origin, the things that our parents believed, our grandparents believed, our great-grandparents believed, because as Pete uh, Pete Scazzaro says in his book, uh, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, Jesus might be in your heart, but grandpa's in your bones. Jesus might be alive and well in your heart. Your heart might be warmed like crazy when you hear uh, a song or the gospel message, but it is your grandmother and grandfather that are in your bones. One of the reasons our country struggles so profoundly with racism is we haven't done the hard work of excavating what is going on, what our true past is in this country. For everybody that I've met, I've only met like five people that are willing to admit that we have a deep, dark past in our country, and some of our own relatives participated in that, and they raised your parents to be like that, and your parents raised you in that same line. I'm not talking about overt racism, of people walking around with KKK hoods. I'm talking about the type of stuff that was inherited in this country and has been the culture for hundreds and hundreds of years. For the last 400 years in this country, people have made so much money by completely dehumanizing different people groups. First, it was the Native Americans. They came over, stole their land, um, completely made them out to be barbarians, killed them, raped their women, and stole everything from them. Once the natives were no longer useful to them, it was the Chinese. Once the Chinese were no longer useful to them, it was African Americans. And for the next several hundred years, uh, over 14 million African bodies were transported from the transatlantic slave trade to the Americas. And for almost 300 years, there was a period of slavery which required a complete level of cognitive dissonance, separating your ethics from your life in order to justify the treatment of people like this. And this pervaded every single area of society, math, science, medicine, religion, every single area of society. But yet we get to today and we act like none of that stuff from our past touches our doors at all. Uh, In doing research, um, I've been doing research for the last number of months. Uh, In the spring, we're getting ready for a series called The Gospel and Race, and we're really going to be doing some pretty hardcore excavating and examination of what it looks like for us to be the people of God, truly, truly, truly living out the call of God in a diverse community of people. 
Uh, but today, I wanted to talk about a, a brief thing about how racism has affected our grandparents and our grandparents' grandparents, and how that's affected your parents, and how that affects you. And if you and I are unwilling to look at our history, history is bound to repeat itself. I won't even show any pictures now of some of the images from slavery or Jim Crow. They are too inflammatory and too traumatic for me to even see them and continue on with the sermon. Uh, but I found one image from when uh, a girl named Ruby Bridges was about to uh, integrate into schools. Ruby Bridges was six years old, and she was, uh, for the first time, going to be escorted by police in order to um, force integrate schools. Up to this point, in 1960, schools were completely segregated in America. The government basically allowed and promoted separate schools based on your race. Now, some of the craziest thing is, when this image happens, um, I don't know what the sign says, uh, to keep our schools white. Um, man, when this picture happened, my dad was 10 years old. He was 10. My grandmother was in her 30s or 40s. Do you mean to tell me that while all of this stuff was going on, with hundreds of millions of Americans being so completely charged by race, that none of that stuff impacted the way your grandparents treated people, or thought about people, or who they were taught to fear, or who they were taught to hate, and that none of that impacted the way they raised your parents, or that none of that stuff impacts the way you see yourself today, black or white, whether it's the internalized racism that we have in America, in, in black cultures, arguing about light skin versus dark skin. Where do you think that stuff comes from? Clowning people for growing up, clowning people for having a tighter grain of hair. That's internalized racism based on the generations and generations and generations that have completely, completely enforced and lived in a system that was so dehumanizing. And the only hope, the only hope forward is for us to do some deep excavation of our lives. Now, a lot of times, um, if we were to really evaluate, especially for my white brothers and sisters, uh, your your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents, that stuff is it's a pretty heavy pill to swallow. It's, a, it's, it's not something that's easy. Uh, the biggest emotion that normally comes up is shame, and we'll do almost anything to distance ourselves from shame, so we'll pretend that that never was our family, when in reality, for 99% of the people, it was. Most of the people were nice, silent people in the face of racism. They would go to church. As the, as the church bells were ringing after church, the slavery auction bells are ringing right alongside of it. Many of these denominations, uh, that was their platform to keep churches completely separate, to separate people. And yet, for whatever reason, we pretend like that stuff is so far in a distant past that it can never touch our doors. The biggest problem that we have is an unwillingness to do the deep hard work of excavation of what our true past is. Who were we taught to fear? What kind of jokes did our parents make about people? Who were you taught was beneath you? What stereotypes just rolled off the tongues of your parents and grandparents that are a part of our deeply embedded uh, culture in America? Racism as, is as American as apple pie. And if we think that that stuff doesn't touch our doors, we are fooling ourselves. How are you guys feeling so far? Pretty good? Pretty great? <laughs> So those are systemic things that we just talked about, me struggling with uh, this toxic version of masculinity that in some ways uh, I'm fighting against every single day. 
and Americans in general fighting against racism, both internalized and external. Uh, but there's also narratives from your past that are very specific to you and your family and the experiences that you've had, the traumas that you faced and endured that have basically dis established a deeply held narrative in which you see the world through a different lens now. Now, all of us have a worldview, and a worldview is basically the lens in which you see the world. And your worldview will determine how you see a situation. Some of our worldviews have been distorted by trauma, abandonment from your parents, traumatic experiences, abuse, at the hands of one person or one people group. You know what that's done? It's rewritten a narrative in your life about those people, about who people are. And if you're going to be transformed and to be into the image of Jesus Christ, to, be, to grow as a follower of Jesus, you're not going to just need to learn stuff. You're going to need to unlearn some stuff. My biggest fear for you would be that you think, you think the, the growth path for you is just acquiring new information or just you having new experiences with God that would blow your socks off. Peter had all of those and more. You'll never have as good of experiences or a resume as Peter, and yet we see him here in Galatians going right back to his old way of life. Our pasts are right behind us, just like our shadows, and none of us are immune to going backwards. Years ago, I was a waiter, and um, this was before they had laws to prevent these kind of things. Uh, in the catering hall in which I worked at, um, people would just light up cigars during weddings, and I always hated those weddings because even though I myself wasn't smoking, I would always leave smelling like an ashtray. Even though I wasn't smoking, it was so pervasive around me, it got on me and in my clothes and in the fabric of my clothes. There are some things that have been going on around you that even if it wasn't just you, it's so powerful that it, got, it still got into the, the fabric of your clothing and you and I need to do the hard work of digging it out. Now, today after service, for everybody who is not in a community group, we have some papers that we want to pass out to you guys for you to be able to go home and do a little homework, to, to do some excavation in your life, to ask yourself questions about what are the narratives, either culturally or personally, that have been handed down to you, um, because the best way forward for all of us, it all starts with the same first step, awareness. The most loving thing that Paul did for Peter was to confront him to bring him awareness that he himself in his life was deviating from the truth of the gospel by somehow um, now refusing to eat with these Gentiles and refusing to be a part of a certain group of people. And Paul, in love, confronts him. And that's what God does for us in love. God confronts us. Sometimes, oftentimes, the most loving thing that God can do is confront you, often with an uncomfortable truth. I mentioned this in our series a couple months ago on the Holy Spirit, that when I was about 17, uh, I was, you know, driving my dad's car. I had the locks bumping, you know, in the CD player, cutting school. And I saw something come at the other direction that, you know, made me completely almost lose everything. I almost crashed the car. I saw my dad driving towards me in the other direction. And this was like 11.30 a.m. So, like, there's no way I was done with school. There's no way I was just leaving for school. And my dad, who's normally a very slow driver, like, busted a U-turn in the middle of the street and like comes behind me, starts honking the horn and flashing his high beams, and he was just like, yo, go to school. And he might have said some other words, but I don't want to put him on blast. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. He was a deacon in a large church. He didn't use those type of profanities. Uh, the most loving thing he could have done as a father was to get behind me and say, you're going in the wrong direction. I know you think you're having fun, but you're going in the wrong direction. 
Oftentimes, the most loving thing God can do is arrest you and tell you you're going in the wrong direction, that there are things in your life that you, you haven't processed well. And I want us this week to make every single effort to start the process of excavation. Now, I also want to give us permission to do one thing, and especially in the African-American community, which is the most taboo thing in the world, which is to go see a counselor. Uh, sometimes some of the stuff that we excavate in our life is so deep and so painful that we need a professional who has digging experience to walk us through that. At Renaissance, we have an affordable counselor for you. All you have to do is email grace, the theological concept, not the person, grace at renaissancenyc.com, G-R-A-C-E, grace at renaissancenyc.com, and we will plug you in with that counselor, and she will help you walk along that journey of excavating the things uh, in your life. Now, we don't just need awareness. Uh, I also think we need hope, and we need to know that there is nothing in our past, nothing that uh, has happened to us that is beyond the reach of Jesus' arms, his outstretched arms, to lead us forward. Now, the only reason God corrects us is because he can lead us forward, and we need to always know that God is never uh, convicting us just so we can stay in the same spot, but so that we can move forward. I love it here in the text where Paul basically tells Peter, um, you know, when, in verse 14, when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel. Here's what the gospel is. It's not just the ABCs of your faith that give you a message that Jesus Christ came, died for your sins, paid the penalty for what you could never pay to establish a relationship with God. Uh, that's the, the gospel you need to become a follower of Jesus. It's not just the ABCs. It's also the A to Z. It's everything you and I need for life and godliness. You want to know what I was not believing when I was correcting my son in the playground? Basically, what was happening was I was wanting the approval of people in the neighborhood. I didn't want people to think I was a chump. I didn't want people to think that my son was a chump. I didn't want him to be branded as a kid that can get picked on one day, and I was worried about their approval. Now, if I had the approval of the God of the universe, why would I need approval from some dudes? I don't even know their names. What was happening was I was deviating from the truth of the gospel. I was seeking affirmation and value and approval from people who could never truly give me that. Here's the craziest thing about seeking approval from other people. The same people whose approval you seek after, even if you get it, you're always going to have to work super hard every single day to get it again and again and again and again. And it's exhausting treadmill to live on, always wondering how people are thinking about you or what you need to do in order to win more people's approval. That's a prison. What God offers us is much bigger and better that, than that. God offers us to be his children, to live as his children, that God sometimes corrects and sometimes and always God leads forward. And the gospel is the lasso that brings us back in line that says, Jordan, you don't need the approval of anybody. Jesus Christ came and went to the cross and endured the harshest of, uh, of any penalty for you because he loves you. Not because you deserved it, bro. Because he loves you. And because of that, there is no separation between you and God. You have full access to God. God is your father. He's not your boss. He's not your professor. He's your father. And there's nothing else you need from anybody else other than what Jesus Christ has done for you. Now, I also love something called the sacraments. And the sacraments are things that we do together as a body of Christ, as Christians, as people that come together to remember Jesus that oftentimes we're deviating from the truth of the gospel in one way or another in our lives, and we need to come back and be reminded of the truth of who Jesus is and how that applies to our lives. Uh, there's a scripture in um, Hebrews 
that says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Man, that's powerful. Here's what the author of Hebrews is saying. Jesus is able to sympathize with all of your weaknesses. Jesus is able to sympathize. He doesn't condemn you for it. He doesn't laugh at you or poke fun at you. He doesn't say, man, I'm so surprised that this is something that you're struggling with. Jesus is able to sympathize with your and my weaknesses. And the scripture goes on to say, but one who has been tempted in every way as we were, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of, God, the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Now, during communion is a time where we're coming to the throne of God to receive grace, and the grace is presented to us in two ways. It's the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is represented in crackers, which was broken for you as a, as a reminder to us that there's nothing that God would not spare for you and for me. And Jesus' blood, which, represent, which is represented through uh, wine and grape juice, as a symbol of Jesus' blood, which is shed for the remission of all of our sins. Here's what this is basically saying. That guilt that you feel, stop. It's been paid for by Jesus' blood. That fear that you have that God is not willing to love you, even if you have some deep, dark stuff going on inside of you, stop. He gave his own body for us. As the scripture tells us in Isaiah, it says, He was pierced for our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and yet the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Now, during this next song, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, I would like you to come up to receive communion as the reminder of what Jesus has done for us, not just to pay for everything that is going on, but as a promise to lead us forward. This week, in your community groups, for those of you who are in community group, I would want you, uh, I'm begging you to do two things. To one, to, to be vulnerable, to be willing to do some of the hard work of excavation. And two, this is a mandate. Do not try to fix anybody else. Do not try to fix anybody else. You have your own stuff to worry about. If someone uh, confesses what they're wrestling with or talks about the narrative that they've inherited, listen and don't say anything. Do not say one word in judgment. If someone is doing that hard work, that is between, let, let Jesus minister to them. And as you come to Jesus right now in communion, uh, let him minister to you as well as the one who has given us his all so that we would not be without. Let me pray for us. Uh, God, our, our, our gracious Father, uh, I thank you that we can come to you and with boldness, not just uh, timidity or fear, but we can come to you with boldness. Jesus, you truly have paid it all. And God, as we commit to do the hard work of excavation, I pray that your Holy Spirit would remind us to take another step forward, that we have overcome in you, and there is nothing behind us that we need to fear. God, would you equip us to take that next step in faith with you? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.